Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Robert B. Parker, who died at the age of 77 in 2010, is known today as one of the most important writers of detective fiction during the final quarter of the 20th century. His wise-cracking Boston private eye Spencer, Spencer sidekick Hawk, and girlfriend Susan Silverman have become iconic figures with dozens of books and multiple television series and TV movies. But back in the spring of 1981, his career was just starting to take off. His first five novels, all featuring Spencer, published by Houghton Mifflin, had been poorly promoted, and he'd taken his work to Delacorte Press, which then published a non-Spencer novel, Wilderness, before coming out with Looking for Rachel Wallace, which was heavily promoted and gave Parker's career the push it needed. Meanwhile, in a fit of pique, the former publisher had let all of his other novels go out of print in paperback. This was Parker's situation when Lawrence Davidson, my co-host on the Probabilities radio program on KPFA, told me that Parker would be in San Francisco and we should interview him in his hotel room. This was our first interview away from science fiction. I quickly read what I could from the library and we drove over the Bay Bridge. My first thought upon seeing Parker was that he looked like my image of Spencer, average height, built for the boxing ring. Good evening. Welcome to Probabilities. Our guest tonight is Robert B. Parker. He writes mysteries about a man named Spencer. Robert B. Parker has written eight books, seven books? Seven published. There's two more coming, one in August and another one thereafter, and then more down the line. I have mouths to feed. <laughs> what do you do for a living other than this? Nothing. This is it. Yeah, I once was a professor. I don't spread that around. I don't like to blow the image. I was a professor, and I finally got to the point where I didn't need to profess anymore, and now I stay home and type. How did you start on the Spencer books? I always wanted to do them, I suppose, since the first time I read Raymond Chandler. I had things to do first, support family and stuff, and somewhere around the age 30, I was working in the advertising business, and my wife said, you don't seem happy with this. Why don't you take time off and write? And I said, because I have all you folks to feed. And she said, well, why don't you be a professor? And I said, but then you need a Ph.D. And she said, why don't you get a Ph.D.? And I said, that's not possible while I'm supporting you. And she said, yes, it is. So I did. Joan doesn't take kindly the fact. So I uh, got through the, uh, the Ph.D. program, became a genuine scholar, a professor, which is a lot better than working. And, uh, in fact, then had time to write. So as soon as I got all that done, I did what I always wanted to do. Do you have any background in police work? No, none at all. Police evasion in my youth, but no police work. Did you base any of the Godwolf manuscript on your adventures or life in the Academy? Yeah. Uh, sure. That is uh, not so much any of the facts of academic life, but 
all of the books have to have a place that you can describe. And when I wrote the Godwolf Manuscript, I was a professor at Northeastern University in Boston, which incidentally is seated in the Western Division of the uh, NCAA attorney. I can't quite figure that out. But. And I had gotten a PhD from Boston University, and I had taught elsewhere, and I made an amalgam of those places. It is The university in that book is neither Northeastern nor Boston University nor any one place, but they are, you know, they are a combination of all. And the people I knew are combinations of people I've known in academia. Did you intend on Spencer becoming a regular character when you first yes. wrote that? Yes. Yes, it uh, didn't occur to me not to. Uh, I don't know. Uh, someone else asked me uh, someplace else, and I don't remember where, uh, whether or not, why I had chosen to write this kind of a book, and I never really chose to. That is, when it was time to write the novel, I sat down to outline it, and this is what came out. And it seemed to me, I'm interested in Spencer, and it gives me a chance to develop and change and let him develop and change. And if I don't get it right, I'm going to keep doing it until I get it right. How Did you do much writing before? Well, I'd always written, but I'd always written uh, advertising copy and uh, industrial films and one uh, technical manuals, one sort of thing or another, because I needed a job because I was married and I had small children. And the Godwolf Manuscript was the first novel or fiction that I had written. Uh, and I sent it out, and the first publisher I sent it to took it in three weeks. I don't have any good stories about living in a garret and getting rejection slips or anything. But the Godwolf Manuscript was the first. All the rest have come along in the same way. What was the reception at the time to that? Actually, there was a good deal of excitement in the publishing house that uh, they had a sense that they may have discovered something, and uh, then the book didn't do as well as they had thought it was going to, although it did all right, uh, and the excitement died. <laughs> I don't mean that they then refused to publish me, but I think that when I started with Houghton Mifflin, who published the first five novels, that they thought that they were going to have a bigger deal than it turned out to be. I moved on from Houghton Mifflin to Delacorte Press, which has done the last three books. And this current book, Early Autumn, 1095 at your local bookseller, even as we speak, friends, it's probably right out there calling to you on the streets. This book and Rachel Wallace, Looking for Rachel Wallace, which preceded it, and Wilderness, which preceded it, all have gotten more attention than all the previous books. Some of that is cumulative. Uh, I mean, if you keep sending them out, people... The, the audience grows. But Wilderness was sold to Universal Films. Uh, Looking for Rachel Wallace was optioned uh, by Columbia. Early Autumn, 1095, a local bookseller, uh, uh, was a book of the month club selection, a uh, detective book club selection, a Playboy book club featured selection. And things sort of bubble, and when they sort of bubble, then the excitement in the publishers starts to bubble, and it feeds on itself. Was there any specific reason you left Hoot and Mifflin? Uh, money. <laughs> Delacorte gave me more money. Yeah. Uh, I told Mifflin's a fine publisher. I have no, uh, there was nothing dramatic in my departure. I think that they had decided that we could all make a, an adequate living with a modest promotional budget, and uh, all publishers have to allocate their resources. Uh, they can't promote everybody equally, obviously. And uh, they didn't need to promote me very much to get a very comfortable sale. Well, Delacorte, almost any publisher who can get a writer away from another publisher, there's a certain amount of enthusiasm builds up, and they're willing to 
give you more maybe than you deserve when you make the shift. Uh, and I had the opportunity to be published by Seymour Lawrence, which is a imprint publisher with Delacorte, uh, who is a marvelous reputation as a publisher. He publishes Kurt Vonnegut and uh, Don Levy and uh, Tim O'Brien, who got the uh, Pulitzer last year, and uh, that sort of thing. So when he was interested in publishing me and offered a uh, substantial multi-book contract, enough so that I could quit teaching, for instance, well, actually, I quit teaching years ago, enough so I could leave teaching. Uh, I went with him, and I'm very happy I did. Much that's good has happened has happened since. There's a great deal of detail in your novels. And one of the things I'd like to know is how much research goes into one of your books. Well, no research, really, in the uh, conventional sense of the word, because I only write about things that I can manage. What he knows, I know. Uh, what he does, I do. He made it a little better. Uh, or a little faster, or with a little less trouble. But the cities he goes to, I've been to, uh, the skills he has, I have. And so that while, in a sense, you could say I have been researching it all my life, I don't do any research other than when I, uh, you know, if I I had a scene in a long section in Mortal Stakes uh, set in New York City, which I know quite well, I lived there for a little while, and I go there often. But I went down and walked around for a few days and looked at, specific places that I wanted to write about. And I'll do a little of that, or uh, the next book, A Savage Place, in August is set in Los Angeles, which I know pretty well and go to quite frequently. But as I was writing it, I had a big Los Angeles street map up so that I'd make sure to remember which which runway St. Vincent Boulevard was and that sort of thing. Uh, that's the extent of the research, really. So mm -hmm. it's a safe bet, then, to say that the uh, Spencer novels are somewhat autobiographical. Well, sure, but any anything in the sense that any novel is autobiographical, he can't know what I don't know. Neither can uh, you know Isaac McCaslin can't know what Faulkner doesn't know. I mean, that's uh, that's easy enough. They come out of me, and so some of the attitudes certainly uh, are mine, though obviously some of them aren't. That is Spencer. I create Spencer, but you got to remember I also create the bad guys, yeah. uh, and they're not all me. Right. Of course, I'm not Susan Silverman either, fella. How much of uh, Spencer's personality would you say he is you? Do you go wisecracking often? Not me. I'm dead serious, fella. <laughs> uh, I pick who I'll wise off at. Let me, let me say that. I was uh, in the hotel in Los Angeles yesterday, uh, and in the lobby was Carl Eller. Uh, now, I didn't say anything wise to Carl at all. When I write the Spencer books, I do not say to myself, okay, now we need some humor here or I want him to have a wisecrack there. I write the book, and as I have him talking, what he says comes out of him or out of me through him. And so he couldn't say those things if I couldn't say them. It's a very valid question, and there really isn't a good answer that I can come up with as to the connection between the hero of literature and the guy that creates the hero. Obviously, there are some. Uh, but there are also some differences. Susan Silverman is uh, admittedly autobiographical. She's modeled very much on my wife, Joan. Again, the fiction that I am making requires that everything in it be subservient to my purpose, so that where it would not serve my purpose to have Susan Silverman be like Joan, then she isn't. Uh, and all I'm then responsible for is to make her internally consistent. And after nine books, seven of which are published, I have established a lot of characters to be consistent with, so that both requires me to have them do certain things. But it also makes life a lot easier because I don't have to wonder what they're like. I know 
the central people in there fairly well. Do you think that uh, Spencer would like Robert B. Parker? He'd be in the minority. <laughs> uh, sure he would, because he's mine. <laughs> I created him, and he will like me. He'll never have a chance to say he doesn't. Is there a hawk? Did you base him on anyone? No, I, well, all right, the uh, two answers to that. No, I did not. I never knew anyone like Hawk, although I have known lots of dangerous people uh, at one time or another. I grew up in the Bedford, Massachusetts. Not everyone does. Uh, and I was in Korea in the Army with a lot of people that had some aspects of them who were, who were relatively amoral, let us say. But Hawk is much more derived out of American literary convention, uh, out of the connections between uh, the hero of the Leatherstocking Tales and his Indian companion, uh, Jingachgook. I like to say that to prove I can. Or uh, Ishmael and Queequeg, or uh, Huckleberry Finn and Jim. Or take it down a couple of intellectual levels, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, if you want right. to. The whole history of uh, American literature includes certain mythic patterns that the white hero is associated with a non-white male companion. For any of you scholars out there, if you want to read more than you never care to about it, you can get Leslie Fiedler, Love and Death in the American Novel, which runs 900 and something pages, I think, and tells you in great detail what that's all about. I'm aware of that. As I say, you can take the boy out of the professor, but you know, <laughs> I was a professor for a long time. Uh, and that was deliberate. When I first introduced Hawk in uh, Promised Land, he was simply... I had decided to give Spencer an adversary, and Hawk seemed to be a good idea. I imagine him as looking like Woody Strode, if you know the yeah. actor Woody Strode. Then, as I was writing the book, I liked the way it worked, and I liked the way uh, Hawk could be, in some sense, without any intention of a racial pun, the darker side of Spencer. What Spencer would be if he were a little less uh, motivated by conventions of honor and concepts of morality, and if he didn't have Susan. And I like that. And then the more an interesting thing happens to you as you write a series of books, you get to like the characters. And uh, now I wouldn't want Hawk to be eliminated because I'd miss him. And so that it develops. But it also serves me good purposes. You can tell something about Spencer by contrasting him with Hawk. In your book, Early Autumn, Hawk kills in cold blood one of Spencer's enemy, mm -hmm. uh, a person that Spencer himself was not willing to kill. This is an example of where the series is going, whether or not you'll be willing to let those guys work a little more outside of the law, say, than they had before. In Mortal Stakes, Spencer killed two guys. Set them up, really, to kill them. Uh, he did it. Uh, Hawk wouldn't have wasted time being fair about it, but I'm firmly convinced that there's right and there's law, and they don't always overlap. Justice is what the court decides it is, and... That's hardly a, a unique concept. A hundred years ago, it was legal to own people, you know, uh, and now it isn't. I keep telling my publisher. I don't really know that. I don't think more than one book ahead. I think about the book I'm working on. In the next two books, I don't know that they go any further outside the law than they do now. I was more interested in the contrast between Spencer and Hawk. Hawk is, one of the things that makes Hawk what he is, is he's a absolutely pragmatist a total pragmatist, easy for me to say, a total pragmatist, it would be very sensible to kill that guy, because if you didn't, he'd be bothering you, and Hawk could. I was really not expecting that at all. I mean, when I read that piece, Joe went right through the floor. It seemed not out of character, but very, very unexpected, and uh, 
you know, I had to stop reading for a minute there, close the book, walk away and have another cup of coffee and, and uh, shake my head a whole lot. It is my intention that you should shake your head at Hawk. One of the reasons that I did that was so that people would shake their head at Hawk. And yet, Hawk is better than most of the people that they deal with because Hawk, there are things Hawk won't do. Uh, Hawk has something that he's good at and something he cares about himself. And there are things he won't do. And in that way, he's a lot like Spencer. Uh, and, I mean, part of the tension is the pull between Spencer trying not to be Hawk and yet finding himself in circumstances where Hawk's virtues are sometimes superior to, to Spencer's. I periodically want to establish that that Hawk is not Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, I remember I had a copy editor someplace. Hawk made something quite an obscene remark about uh, an airline stewardess and a copy editor. Copy editors are always anonymous. You just write notes back and forth on gallons. And uh, the copy editor objected, which is what I wrote in the margin. Well, you know, what, what do you think we got here? Oh, this is not, uh, you know, this is not the Rover Boys. This is hot. Would do that? You know, I wouldn't do that. And I agree, it was an obscene remark, and, he, and no gentleman would. But Hot's not a gentleman. I wouldn't shoot somebody in cold blood like Hot did, you know, or admit it. You know. Do you see yourself having any problems maintaining that character, or do you think as as you continue working, he's going to kind of get more principled, like a lot of let's say, anti-heroes generally do as time goes on? I don't think so. Uh, I think if you read the books sequentially, and please do, don't get them from the library, buy them. Spencer evolves as I evolve. I mean, I started writing the first Spencer book late in 1971, so it's almost 10 years, and I'm almost 10 years older by coincidence. And obviously, as I, as, as I change, uh, he's bound to change. On the other hand, as Cody Strumsky said about, I could play left field in my sleep. I can write Spencer in my sleep. And uh, I don't consciously think ahead, but I know I can always do this. He'll be around. I do other things. I have written some non-Spencer books, and I have a novel, another non-Spencer novel uh, under contract, a love story in which nobody shoots at anybody, partly because to do those lets me come back to the Spencer books fresher and do it a little better. With a question of paperbacks and being out of print, let me say this about my former paperback publisher. <laughs> Berkeley had them for the first five books, and the paperback, the, the contractual arrangement of all of that will bore everyone, and I won't pursue it. But uh, there is always, normally, your hardcover publisher then sells the rights to a paperback publisher. When you leave the hardcover publisher, you then probably also leave the paperback publisher, which I did when I went to Delacourt, then Dell got the paperback rights to my books. Uh, and starting with Wilderness, it is Dell who will bring them out, although only Wilderness so far has come out. But Rachel Wallace will be out next month in paper. As far as I can tell, and I uh, don't really know uh, exactly why, Berkeley was unhappy enough about my move to let the books go uh, out of print, which they did. We have since gotten the rights to revert back to Houghton Mifflin and are now in negotiation to resell those rights to Seymour Lawrence Delacorte, who will reissue if who may reissue if we can do that the hardcovers in, in, in bound volumes of three and then proceed into paper. You can't get them. Uh, so you can't get the back issues unless you stumble across one. God, Godwolf is, God is Wolf, in uh, went into its fourth printing, uh, which again makes me wonder why would they let it go? Uh, it wasn't. I mean, it's selling, or they wouldn't have gone through four printings, and they're selling that off. But that, in a year or so, I hope that they will be 
back available because that's an annuity. It's a real, yeah, it's a real hassle when you want to read them sequentially. And I mean, I got when I when I got Godwolf out of the out of the library at that point, it was not in paper. I couldn't Mm -hmm. find it. Then I managed to get God Save the Child, Mm -hmm. and I got that. And then I was going to go on to the third, and I went back to the library, not there. Go to a used bookstore, not there, and you're stuck. Can you imagine what a writer feels like when people come to him and say, I'd like to buy your book, but I can't find it. You know, I mean, I'm going to kill myself or somebody. The paperback situation, I think, will get straightened out in a while. They should be available again. Don't give up hope, Brett. Last night, you had a meeting with producer Michael Douglas? Yes, I did. I had dinner with Michael Douglas at a restaurant in L.A. called Trump's This Week's Current Hot One, I think. Also with Michael Phillips, who owns Wilderness. It was a largely social event. I don't have any uh, blockbuster news to tell you. Damn it. But as far as I know, Wilderness has progressed through two screenplays, and Mike Phillips is going to give me a call when I get back home, and we're going to talk about the situation of the screenplay at the current moment. I have seen a first draft screenplay on uh, Rachel Wallace. There's some work to be done in the middle. I didn't do that one either, and there. If you have read Rachel Wallace, you know there's a long period of time in which Rachel Wallace is off-camera, as it were, and in which Spencer goes through a series of rather random attempts to find her, which makes a decent novel, if I may say so, but would be a little uh, choppy and clumsy in a movie. It would, uh, that middle part is hard to do in a movie, and we've got to find a different way to do it, I think. There has been talk of Roy Scheider in the part, I think it is fair to say that the distance between what is said in Los Angeles and what is finally produced is sometimes extensive. It could very well not work out in any of these ways, uh, although uh, money has changed hands, which is always nice, uh, and does make everything a bit more likely. I do know that Roy Scheider spoke highly of me in a Playboy interview last, a few months ago. He, his favorite writers were Garcia Marquez, Jean-Louis Borges, and me. Us Nobel laureates. Speaking of awards, uh, what was the effect on your career when you won the Edgar Allan Poe Award? Uh, as far as I can tell, nothing at all. <laughs> uh, I, I would think the majority of the reading public doesn't know what the Edgar Allan Poe Award is. Uh, one of the things that made me less happy about my hard and soft cover publishers is that none of them ever mentioned it. I got a few letters of congratulation, one from somebody in Seattle, Washington, and one from somebody in London. As far as the local papers were informed, the uh, never happened. There are no uh, Edgar Award-winning author stuff on the books right after it happened. Uh, I think they failed to exploit it as much as they should have, yeah. but I'm not sure that exploiting it to its limit would have made a major impact on my career, partly because the sale of hardcover books is not where one's living comes from in writing. It is the sale of paperback rights and book club rights and movie rights. And to some extent, foreign translation rights. I'm in most of the major languages, including Japanese, where everything is in kanji except my middle initial. For, you know, they have no way to record a B in kanji, so it goes B. Have you written any Spencer short story? Yes, I have. I wrote one. I do not write short stories, and I'm not very good at it. I was solicited by uh, the fiction editor at Playboy, Alice Turner, to... Uh, submit them a short story, and I could do it. I had time. And while I said that I do not do it well, I thought, why not? So I sent it in, uh, because after all they had asked me, and they rejected it. 
said I might be able to revise it, and they considered against our advice, and they rejected it again. That's my adventures as a short, uh, short story writer. So it's still unpublished. It's still unpublished, and uh, perhaps they they might even be right. But it's my only rejections. And what I like about it is they asked me, they solicited it, and then I sent it in. They said, "Nah, we don't like that." <laughs> When you were still teaching, was your course on appreciation or on writing mysteries? Well, it wasn't on mysteries. It was neither appreciation nor writing. We were working on understanding. The course was called The Novel of Violence, which, as I had said a little while ago, uh, is not my title and is not a particularly good one. During the uh, early 70s, you may recall, in English departments around the country, students were flocking out, and there were times when the faculty exceeded the enrolled English majors, and uh, there would have been hundreds of out-of-work teachers who are capable of nothing else and who would have starved to death. If someone has to, I don't know why they shouldn't. But. And so there was a lot of student-catching stuff going on, uh, science fiction courses, introduction to, uh, oh, film courses were very big, you know, here's how you watch movies. And mine got thrown in there. I tried to make it a course of some actual interest. And it was a little disappointing to some of the kids to get in there and find that they had to read Cooper and Melville and Twain, as well as me. It was a chance to read me. Uh, I was attempting to talk about the evolution of the American hero and the interesting facts of uh, American literature, which is that the hero was almost always isolated. Well, D.H. Lawrence once said the, uh, the essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. And that quote from Lawrence was the premise of the course, in a sense. So why would that be so? I also taught fiction writing at Northeastern for a while. I don't think that I've uh, inspired a, uh, a school of disciples, and then finally I got contract with Delacourt, and now I don't teach anything to anybody. Now, you've written all these Spencer books, and you have a background in reading mysteries and detectives. Mm -hmm. What were your favorites? What do you really, really love to read? Chandler. Raymond Chandler's the best that ever did this, including me. Uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on Chandler, Hammett, and Ross MacDonald. I think most people agree they were the, the three heaviest hitters in the genre. Uh, I'm not sure that the idea of genre really works once you start looking at it closely. An interview, I think, uh, in L.A. the other day told me that I was one of her two favorite mystery writers, the other being P.D. James. And then stopped and said, well, how can you both be mystery writers? And... Maybe there's something wrong with the genre name rather than... Uh, it's very hard. What I, ha I have absolutely nothing in common, for instance, with the so-called father of the mystery story, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, thank God for that. But certainly uh, if there is some connection, and I don't know that I've seen three reviews of my work which didn't mention the Hammett-Chandler tradition. Some of them say the Hammett-Chandler Southern California private eye tradition without noticing that Hammett never got to Southern California until he started writing movies. But anyway, uh, they they are major. John D. McDonald, of course, uh, is prolific. Ross McDonald, I think, did something. Perhaps I don't know he did it, but it was Ross McDonald who, in a couple of front page reviews in the Times and a cover of Newsweek, and made the kind of book I write available for critics who demand high seriousness, and allowed people to read them as if they were actual novels. Uh, by a regular grown-up, uh, and uh, for no other reason than that, one owes him a uh, considerable debt for that. Uh, I don't know where he is these days. It's been five years since he wrote anything. Well, Blue Hammer came out in 76. He's either rich or tired, I suppose. George Higgins is very good. Uh, if, if Higgins were 
writing about people who were suffering angst in Scarsdale or uh, neurosis in Malibu and didn't swear as much, people would notice that he's a really remarkable stylistic innovator. And he gets the stories told not only in dialogue, but in dialogue two and three times removed. Charlie told me that Sam said to him, and that's where you get the story. And that's a very interesting trick. And uh, he's terrific. Truth and Lending Act requires me to tell you he's also a friend of mine, but uh, even if he weren't. And, but it's also hard for me to read very much contemporary fiction because I look at it the way a carpenter looks at a house. It's difficult for me to get that suspension of disbelief and get involved in the story. I can do that if I uh, read Faulkner or Fitzgerald. I'm able to do it with Jean Le Carre, who um, I, I think probably a lot of people took to reading him after the PBS series there in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And I read the three Snily books, and he's marvelous uh, density and power. But that's about all I do. And uh, he's one of the few people who are now writing at the same time I am that I can read, not because they're good or bad, but because I can't. I can't. I, I assume if you're a movie director, it's hard for you to go to the movies. In. Do you plan any more non-Spencer detective novels? Well, I won't do any non-Spencer detective novels, but I will periodically do novels that are not about Spencer. He'll be the only detective I will mess around with. As I said, I have a, uh, a love story that I call Love and Glory. I say I said, I, I, at this point, uh, I don't know always whether I've just said it to you or said it to someone yesterday in another city. But uh, pardon me if I say I just said it and didn't. There is a book called Love and Glory, which I have on the contract, which I have outlined, which I have maybe 35 pages done on, which is a love story uh, that begins in 1950 and ends in contemporary times. Then I'm supposed to deliver that next September. Were you a boxer? Only when flight was unavailable. <laughs> okay. And do you really bench press 250? Yes, I can really do that. Or <laughs> I don't know if I can do it today, the last time I tried it. I can also run five miles. In fact, I can run ten miles. Or something that passes for running. Do you feel that, that detective fiction is viewed with the same hostility by the literary establishment as some of the other genres, such as science fiction or westerns? A little less. I would guess that if you had a descending or, or ascending order of scorn, uh, that science fiction would be at the top of it, and that mystery stories would be at the bottom of it. That is, they would be most scornful of science fiction, somewhat less of westerns, somewhat less of uh, detective stories, but still much more scornful than they would be of uh, something uh, introspective and anxious and uh, despairing. That, I think, is, uh, I know, that always drove Raymond Chandler crazy, that he would never be accepted for the major novelist that I think he is, because he wrote something that they could classify as a detective story. That doesn't drive me crazy, because I am uh, of more placid temperament than Chandler was, and the happier Mary, probably. But it is an annoyance. Uh, what has happened, uh, as I say, McDonald made that more available for serious consideration. Hammett is now partly because he's been dead long enough, partly because of his long association with Lillian Hellman, partly because he was quite grim himself. Uh, academic critics are very uncomfortable with humor, having some trouble understanding it, I think. Uh, Stephen Marcus did a, a sort of seminal uh, analysis of Hammett's early short fiction arguing that they were the best work Hammett ever did. I think he's crazy. Some of that stuff was absolutely dreadful. The early Hammett 
pulp stories like Corkscrew, for instance, where the Continental Op goes west and rides a bucking bronco and uh, runs into people who wear two guns in a cult, Milk River, uh, you know, hey-ho, partner. Uh, <laughs> it was written for Dime Detective, a black mask, and it sounded it. The Hammett, obviously Hammett was at his best in the Maltese Falcon. He never did it as well before or since. The Dane Curse has got that nice, rich, pulpy quality to it, and it's uh, it's fun. I like it. Uh, and I feel that way about Red Harvest. I think he tried something quite serious in the glass key and didn't do it. And I think that the Thin Man, let us not speak of the Thin Man. <laughs> the Thin Man was a disaster, I think. But nonetheless, Hammett, both because of the, all of those factors, has started to get serious consideration. And because the Maltese Falcon is a major novel, as Chandler said about it, if something could be this good, why not be even better? And it's a, it's a good novel unrelated to what the profession of the protagonist is. Hammett's a funny guy. I mean, it's very interesting about Hammett. He wrote five novels in five years and then didn't write another one between 1934 and 1961 when he died. I have no idea why. I assume that that Chandler will begin to get his due in a while, the longer he's dead and the... But I think it'll be harder for people because he's funny. Earlier you mentioned Black Mask. Did you ever collect or pay any attention to reading some of the earlier earlier things? Yeah, well, see, I was uh, <laughs> I read them when they came out. The pulp magazines were uh, very uh, widespread and successful when I was a kid and were up until the advent, after the war. Television came and uh, there they went. Yeah, I read Black Mask and Dime Detective, and uh, they were divided essentially into westerns, love stories, which no boy read when I was a kid, was allowed to. Sports, detective, and western. I guess there was science fiction, too, but I never, sorry for the audience, but I never was interested in it. But I made no active attempt to collect it or anything. I just read them as they came out, the way I read Life magazine, you know, and... Uh, they would suppose I would like to have some now. You know. Too bad I hadn't stuck them away. Like big little books, you know, I would have made a fortune. Save mine, friends, you never know. How do you feel about some of the lesser big names of Black Mask? They wrote better than you'd think they wrote if you had not read the pulps. When one talks about pulp writers, one is inclined to think of a comic book level, but they were pretty good. And Cap Shaw, who I guess ran Black Mask, taught a lot of people how to write quite well. I used to enjoy them all. I don't know quite what the thing is that distinguishes Chandler from Frank Gruber, for instance. But whatever that thing is, it's uh, it's very large. I mean, there's no comparison. And there was no comparison between Carol John Daly and Dashiell Hammett either. I mean, the, just the gap was way out there. I probably could figure out what it is, but I never saw the reason to. <laughs> Nonetheless, I think they were better than if you don't know those writers at that time than you'd think they were. Is there any writer who was around that time who has not been reprinted that you would like to see? Uh, oh, uh, I used to like Jeffrey Holmes, whose real name is Daniel Mainwaring, and who wrote about a detective named Humphrey Campbell, who was fairly successful at one time, Jeffrey with a G, Holmes without an L, and who was also a screenwriter and uh, adapted his own. Now, there was a good, there's a good old uh, cinema noir movie, 1946-7, with Mitchum and Kirk Douglas, uh, from out of the past, which I saw not long ago because uh, somebody had acquired the rights to it and wanted to know if I wanted to write a screenplay. And we looked at it, and I said I did, and then he never got back to me. That happens not infrequently. Jeffrey Holmes wrote that from his book called Build My Gallows High. I liked him. He was nice. I mean, that's probably the only one I can think of. Now, we're talking uh, you know, a fair piece ago. I don't remember them all. How long does it take you 
to write a novel. That's a function to some extent of how, uh, when I need to deliver it. Uh, I write, to, uh, at the moment, uh, my, I'm writing four pages a day, or would be if I weren't here talking to you. It would take me, uh, and then it's a function of how many days I do, and how many days depends on how near I have to do it. There isn't a simple answer to that, but I can easily write a 200-page novel in three or four months, and I don't get any better if I go slower. But there's no point to me writing more than one, maybe two a year, because the publisher won't bring out more than one, maybe two a year. Two only if they can bring one out in the early spring and one out in the late winter so that it's sort of spread out. But I don't know. I don't know what my upper limit is. One of the things I'd like to do, obviously, is diversify and write screenplay, which would help with my income. What actress do you see playing Susan Silverman? Susan Pluchette. The tough part is that she has to seem intelligent. Susan Pluchette has a nice bite to her, but Susan Silverman may be just a hair better looking. Not that Susan Pluchette wouldn't do. No, Mary Tyler Moore wouldn't do badly. Once we've discovered that she can do stuff other than our Mary, which apparently she proved that ordinary people, and, and she got good treatment from the New York critics and her uh, on-stage stuff. The play got badly treated once the lead was a female, but apparently that wasn't her fault. It was inappropriate. I didn't see the play. Where do you see the series going? I don't. As I said, just think about the book that I'm writing. I see it continuing. I'm contractually obligated to deliver four more after A Savage Place. But even if I weren't, I'll write these until I die. And I actually am not planning to, so it may go on forever. What is the next Spencer novel about? It takes place in Southern California, where he's hired to protect a uh, female newscaster who's been threatened as a result of her investigations into corruption in the movie business. That's as far as I go with plot summary. Do you plan to use some of your experiences dealing with Hollywood folks? In no direct way, but uh, again, you can't write a persuasive novel about something you don't know anything about, and so I have to know my way around Los Angeles enough to uh, to write about it. Uh, I mean, there's ways that you can imply that you know more than you do, and you know uh, any decent writer knows how to do that and will. The realism is in locale and scenery and ambiance and place, scene, as it were, in the larger sense. The details of uh, chicanery and greed uh, one can get anywhere. <laughs> I mean, that, that's equally available in any circumstance. I can't honestly think of any specific instance in which I translate a specific experience into the book in uh, Savage Place. For instance, the newscaster, uh, someone told me that they knew, people have yeah. seen this in galleys, they knew that the newscaster was based on Kelly Lang, whom I have been interviewed by, and it isn't. <laughs> I had never once for a moment thought of Kelly Lang when I was writing the book. Someone once wrote me a letter in an earlier book and said in the letter, in effect, I know that the villain in this book is John Gardner, the novelist. Don't try to deny it. Now, what have you got to say to that? I didn't have a lot of options, you know, but uh, I had never, I'd never met, I have since met John Gardner. Actually, I met him two nights ago in Los Angeles, but I had never laid eyes on him. I didn't know what he looked like. That happens not infrequently, that people project things. I, I guess probably, unless you do it, maybe you can't know that there's a great deal that I just make up. That's what fiction is. I imagine it. And there isn't a prototype for it. You know, uh, The prototypes are all for the place, for the, the so-called circumstantial realism, but not for the, the people and not even for the events. By the time Robert B. Parker died at the age of 77 in 2010, 38 Spencer novels had been published, 
with three more in the wings. There had been the TV series Spencer for Hire, a spin-off Hawk program, and several television movies. Despite his promise to only write Spencer mysteries, 1989 brought Poodle Springs, which featured Raymond Chandler's detective Philip Marlowe, followed by a sequel two years later. Then in 1997 came the first of nine books featuring Jesse Stone, an LAPD detective who becomes a small-town New England sheriff. In 1999, the first of six books featuring female detective Sonny Randall, and in 2005, the first of four Western novels featuring the characters Cole and Hitch. After Parker's death, his family decided to let other writers continue the Spencer, Stone, and Western series, which all go on to this day. There have been nine new Spencer novels written by Ace Atkins, and one of them formed the basis for the recent Netflix film Spencer Confidential. This interview with the late Robert B. Parker was conducted in San Francisco in the spring of 1981. My co-host was Lawrence Davidson. The recording was digitized, remastered, and edited in November 2021. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.